Andrew Talks to Chefs is an independent podcast. For current and past episodes, Andrew's blog, contact information, and more, please visit andrewtalkstochefs.com. To support us, please visit patreon.com slash andrewtalkstochefs. Enjoy the show. Andrew Talks to Chefs is brought to you in part by San Pellegrino Sparkling Natural Mineral Water. For more than 120 years, San Pellegrino has been inspiring people to savor life and tasteful moments around the table. As chefs and restaurants have evolved worldwide, San Pellegrino has always been there to complement the food they serve, the moments they create, and to support them in both good and challenging times. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. I'm Massimo Bottura. This is Amanda Cohen. This is David Kinch. This is Mike Anthony. This is Huni Kim. This is Amanda Freitag. This is Richard Blaze. This is Paul Kahn. This is Curtis Stein. This is Stephen Harris. This is Missy Robbins. And you're listening to Andrew Talks to Chefs. All of the elements being together is what makes that great meal. I think being a chef, sometimes people focus exclusively on the food that's on the plate or in some cases, the progression of dishes across the course of a meal, like this arc of the narrative of a meal is a wonderful thing to kind of explore. But the food is one part. The food is what you buy. That's the transaction. The meal is the memory. That is the voice of Gabe McMacken, chef of Troutback in Amenia, New York. He is our guest today on Andrew Talks to Chefs. It's gonna take a Hi, everybody. Welcome to the show. This is Andrew Talks to Chefs. I am your host, Andrew Friedman. I hope this finds all of you well out there and a happy Thanksgiving week to those listeners who are here as I am in the United States. Like a lot of food people, Thanksgiving is my favorite holiday. I love the fact that it is centered on a meal. I loved the fact that it is universally celebrated. It's not connected to any one religion. Uh, And I love the fact that we all, well, I shouldn't say this because so many of you are in the hospitality industry, but I love the fact that civilians like myself generally get four days off to enjoy the slow rollout of the holiday season as Thanksgiving, of course, always falls on a Thursday. So to those of you out there who do celebrate Thanksgiving, I want to wish you a happy Thanksgiving week. To those of you who are working on the holiday, although I'll be eating at home, I thank you for your service. Those who are dining out, I'm sure, greatly appreciate it. My guest today is Gabe McMacken. Gabe is someone I haven't spent a ton of time with over the years, but he's probably one of my absolute favorite people in the hospitality industry. Gabe is a chef for About five years, he had the restaurant The Finch, which was a very well-regarded restaurant in Brooklyn, New York. For a couple of years now, he has been chef of Troutbeck, which is a spectacular property in Amenia, New York, that is in upstate New York. It's about 90 minutes from my home in Hastings-on-Hudson, which is just north of New York City. And Gabe is just a tremendous chef, first of all. Also, just a really good person. He's a very thoughtful person. He is a very thought-out person and somebody with whom I've always enjoyed kicking around both 
personal topics, topics of creativity, topics of food, industry things. We actually first got to know each other when he was a guest on the show I used to host with my good friend Jimmy Bradley called The Front Burner. And we, he became a regular guest because we really enjoyed uh, hearing his thoughts so much and enjoyed spending time with him. And when Gabe found himself at Troutback, this, for me, uh, he had been there for a little bit. But during this awful almost two years now that we've all been through with the pandemic, I did go and visit him a few times. One time was just to sort of walk the grounds of the spectacular property where Troutbeck is located. Uh, one time was last year in 2020 for a dinner. And then this year, he was kind enough to invite me and my wife, Caitlin, up. We spent a night as guests of Troutbeck at the hotel there and had a meal that Gabe prepared for us. It was, as all of his meals have been that I've, that I've eaten, just tremendous, really extraordinary. And I was supposed to do an interview with Gabe the day after that dinner and we hadn't seen each other in a while we ended up talking so much before i started recording that i came back five days later i ran out of time kate and i had to get back to our home and our family uh i came back about five days later and gabe and i sat down again and we did this interview you'll hear as we get into it as things tend to happen for us we started to kind of free associate uh i don't think that's a bad thing i think it's a very Interesting conversation about a number of things, both Gabe's biography, which we did not finish, and some of the challenges facing the industry currently, which we did not solve. But I think the conversation is one that you'll enjoy being a fly on the wall for. And Gabe and I, is, you know, spoiler alert, toward the end of the interview, we resolved that periodically I'm going to hop in my car and drive up there and visit him. And we're going to just kind of free associate some more for your listening pleasure, because I do think... We tend to have pretty interesting conversations. I don't think there's anything else I need to say about this. I, I would recommend if you are in the New York area or if you are visiting the New York area and can get to upstate New York, Troutbeck is a beautiful historic property. Uh, the, the staff there is eager to please. The rooms are lovely. And the food, of course, by Gabe and his team is just extraordinary. As always, our feature interview is presented by Sam Pellegrino. Whether in life or on the plate, every chef has a story to tell. Sam Pellegrino proudly helps them share those stories in their restaurants and right here on Andrew Talks to Chefs. The perfect complement to great food and meaningful interactions, Sam Pellegrino is delighted to be a part of the conversation. Learn more at sanpellegrino.com. And with that, Let's get to my conversation with Gabe McMacken. Here you go. I was driving up here and I had this thought and I thought maybe we'd start with this before we get into anything else. I'm driving up, you know, on the Taconic to come see someone I know and like whose work I respect to talk about what you do, how you got here, how you do what you do. It sounds corny. Maybe it's because it's a beautiful fall day. It was a beautiful day to drive up here from my home. I rarely stop to think about this, but I think it applies to both of us. It can be hard. It was especially hard for people who do things that fall into the realm of what you and I both do during the you know the the peak of the pandemic. We're so lucky to do what we do. I'm like I'm driving 90 minutes to go talk to you're nodding to go talk to somebody about 
life, about craft, about passion. We can really lose sight of this in the day-to-day and in the stress of making a living. But I took a moment and I said, and that's how I want to start talking to Gabe today. Yeah. This is an incredible thing that we've, you know, wrapped ourselves in. This world or, you know, all of these, these things that are swirling around are amazing. To be able to pluck out this view to be able to pluck out this room that we're sitting in um to be able to think about these things that we're thinking about talking about doing on a day-to-day um we're we're not breaking rocks you know we're you know nobody's standing over us with you know uh some threat of violence (laughs) this is an incredible luxury to be able to do this um i feel like i have been so fortunate you know through my path wherever I look in the rear view to be able to say like, wow, that was an amazing thing that I got to do there. Or to be able to come in to this environment where we're sitting now and drop back and say like, these are the toys that I get to play with, or these are the people that are in this sandbox. It's an amazing thing. These collaborators, um, this audience, um, but also just for me to be able to say, this is something that I've I, I sometimes got to remember. I chose this. And it's it's definitely also easy to forget this stuff. But I chose this. I get to do this. And I it's it's an incredible thing to be able to enjoy doing what I get to do. Yeah. Yeah. How did you choose it? You, um, you know, I've always been struck when we talk. One of your parents uh, was a teacher, is that mm-hmm. correct? Yeah, my yeah. mother has been a music teacher at the same uh, Montessori school now for 40 years. I mean, there's the old cliche, and I do think it's an outdated one at this point. But I don't think when you started cooking, it was necessarily outdated, you know, of of the kitchen being like this refuge for people, you know, this kitchen being a place for people who don't fit anywhere else, you know, this whole this whole kind of cliche of professional kitchens. I've never thought of you as someone who fits that mold. You know, it seems to me like you probably could have gone any number of ways when you were, I didn't know you when you were younger, but you've always struck me as you know, you've got great people skills, you're pretty well read, you're, you know, clearly educated. And, Thank you. Um, but I'm just wondering, like, when you say this is something I chose, how did you choose it? Was it a tough decision? Was it a tough choice? Yeah, it's been a very tough choice. And I, I think I have to keep making that choice. I chose not to do it for a long, long time. My first um, experiences that were really, really memorable with food were like, the beauty of an ingredient like this. I always remember this one tomato that, you know, my mother had grown. I remember this so distinctly. I could have been four years old. The flavor of the tomato, the texture of the skin, the smell of the vine, you know, exactly where we were standing when I when I picked this tomato was just so many years later, still so uh, deeply affecting sitting in the middle of a raspberry patch, like just eating and enjoying this these moments or being able to cook something for somebody as a little kid and having that kind of that sense of joy um, as I you know, wound my way through elementary school, uh, we would have these um, parents would come in and help cook lunch for the uh, sixth, seventh, and eighth grade class and all of the teachers. And I remember 
loving doing those kinds of things or getting to help cook for holidays. Where was this, by the way? Where did you grow up? Oh, I grew up in between Woodbury and Washington, Connecticut, uh, Litchfield County, northwest corner, um, uh, mostly in Woodbury on an old farmhouse. where we had fruit trees and gardens and you know wild grapes in the woods and uh, a nature preserve next door that we could just go wander around in. There was a sheep farm next door and then a dairy farm across the street. And there was just an opportunity to go um, be where we were. If it's climbing trees or uh, tasting what a wild apple is like, there was very much a connection to um, where we were. Uh, I had three little, I have three uh, younger sisters. We, you know, ran all over the place and just really, really enjoyed uh, where we were and still get to do that now. And now I have a, a six year old and getting to see him exploring this place, building a dam in the middle of the woods where the stream runs through is, is an incredible joy um, to be able to see that. But, uh, to you know to then get a job like when when i had a um you know my first jobs uh whatever mowing lawns or cleaning up or doing manual labor for somebody i had a a a summer where i think i was 16 or maybe i was even 17 i had some wheels i could could drive to somewhere a little bit further away I ended up with a job washing dishes in a restaurant, just kind of randomly. What could I do? This job showed up as an opportunity. What kind of place? Uh, it was an Austrian restaurant. It still is an Austrian restaurant called the Hopkins Inn in actually Warren, Connecticut, but they, uh, they're on Lake Warramog, um, in, which is mostly really in Washington. Um, and it's run by a, a couple, uh, he's Swiss and she's Austrian and they had bought it from, uh, a Swiss couple, um, who had started it many, many years ago. When I got this job in the, uh, I think it was 1994 or 93 or 94, um, I went in there as a daytime dishwasher and all of the rhythm of that room of that kitchen the swiss and austrian and german uh hotel school kids that were made up the bulk of the cooking staff were heads down focused cooks they were serious cooks and the um, people that were running the kitchen, uh, Franz Schober, um, his chef de cuisine, Franzi, and um, his stepson, Toby, were the uh, kind of the chefs in the kitchen. And they were serious about what they did. And I was immediately uh, enthralled. So you were saying, like, why did I, how did I choose this? Or did I, like, the, the idea of being the misfit um, and you know, this is again mid '90s, right? I get my first taste of being in the restaurant business, and the satisfaction of like, I get to do this thing. I get to do it well. I see these per- these people who I can tell they are um, really good at what they do. I you know can imagine myself doing this thing. It's not like I'm seeing somebody who's an alien performing this you know impossible feat this is a realistic opportunity for me to kind of learn and practice this skill and feel the satisfaction of doing that job well. And it's, it's like I'm washing lettuce or I'm 
running dishes through the dish machine or I'm you know butchering a fish or I'm cleaning these things or I'm doing what is the task at hand in a very, very satisfying way mm-hmm. as part of a whole. So to be part of a whole is whether you're um, in a theater production or you're on a team that's building anything together is intensely satisfying. And at that time, like I'd been on other teams like, you know, on a landscaping crew or, you know, a soccer team. Like there are other things that were were really great, but it didn't necessarily compare to that moment of being in the kitchen and being to help being able to help somebody. Did that part of it uh, surprise you? Like you, you know, you just you've described in just a couple of minutes two very distinct parts of your young life, right? Uh, this appreciation of ingredients and in food, and being a part of a you know, you use the word team, uh, whether it was athletic or some kind of job that involved uh, physical work. Before you got to that kitchen, did you ever connect? good food with kind of the physicality of being a professional cook? I didn't have any point of reference for that. I didn't know really about restaurants. We didn't go to restaurants growing up, really. Um, My mother was the oldest of 11. So, you know, and my father was uh, the middle child of three kind of wild boys, um, like always getting in trouble growing up hopping freights and oh really you know causing causing lots of i guess more trouble for his his mom um but in the most good-hearted you know kind of 60s and 70s free spirit free spirited you know hippie vagabond yeah um <laughs> and you know I, I sometimes forget about this um but he he you know very much an inspiration and individuality he's very much driven by what inspires him following what what he um is excited about exploring the world um in his own kind of wonderful way um so we we didn't do restaurants we didn't avoid restaurants but it was like well let's try and cook this at home like let's figure out if we can do this let's make our own maple syrup let's oh i don't know like wild foods or growing grapes or raspberries or rhubarb and let's figure out what this thing is like. Um, So there was always that sense of exploration. We were always feeding a big family. Um, My great grandmother lived with us when we were young or we would have aunts and uncles and you know, cousins were always with us um, so that we were always cooking. We were always, you know, kind of feeding people but it was more about being together um, and getting something together than a production. It wasn't like a you know picture perfect Thanksgiving dinner. It was like okay, well for Thanksgiving the ritual is we're going to have a pinata in the afternoon, and it's going to be a lot of fun, and all the kids are going to be around, and you know there's going to be this kind of pleasure of being together um, rather than a, uh, a huge landscape of food. Mm-hmm. Um, so again, I, I didn't have a uh, an idea of what being in a restaurant was like. I knew that I liked it. I knew once I once I tasted it that I really really liked the taste. But I also knew early on that I couldn't see my friends on a Saturday night. I was locked in. I had a job, and I could go out late 
and try and play catch up. But if I was getting out at 1130 or 12 or later, party's done in this part of the world and, you know, rural Connecticut. Oh yeah. I'm driving around dirt roads to see if they were at this spot or that spot or the other spot. Um, and if there's anything, you know, if there's anything left. Um, so I knew that it wasn't a, if, if my interests were just to be in food, that was something that I could pursue. I could do that. I could, I could imagine that, but I did not want that lifestyle or kind of what I felt like was a singularity. If I, if I wanted to enjoy life, see music and art and have deep relationships with friends, I couldn't do this. And I still really carry that today um, through you know, working in restaurants in college and I've been in and out of the, the restaurant business for a long, long time and explored different industries thinking, how do I find this joy? How do I find this pleasure or this kind of electricity and be able to enjoy the other parts of the world that are really special? I think the view of the call it the life of the chef or the life of a, of a person in a restaurant because it, it, even when I started and where I went it wasn't about being a chef it was about practicing a craft like the some of the restaurants that I worked at it wasn't the you know the person the tallest hat that was the cool guy it was that we were all together you know there were four guys in the hotline at Sperry's and Saratoga Springs when I worked there and there were three guys in the cold side and everybody was just together you know davy was the chef and swa was the sue and we were we were kind of all on the same team um so it was it wasn't like one person was my i wasn't looking to be the chef i knew that there was something different about what we were doing and what i wanted to do on my day off or what I wanted to do as a dad or as a maker of other things. I didn't ever see that like when I was in college as um, what I wanted for my quote unquote career. It's interesting because a lot of people, especially people who start with a dishwashing job, right? A lot of people I feel like get drawn to the kitchen first and then get into the food and then become really good at what they do, right? And some of our most successful chefs started like that. It seems more like for you, it was the food and that all the stuff that came with it was more something and some of it that you had to kind of make peace with. Yeah. And I, I still haven't made peace with it. And so there's, there's Maybe because you have a family and all that, or it's just still, it's kind of in conflict with your natural biorhythm or. Well, all the above. I think that the restaurant business, like any other service business is, you know, you're, you're trying to provide an experience that sometimes you're not able to afford yourself. You're imagining uh, a world, you're creating this, this theater of ideas, the theater of experience that isn't necessarily a practical one, but you're imagining it, you're building this kind of dreamscape and you're seeing how it can be. You have to take it on faith that things will work out. So there is an intense kind of riskiness to building a restaurant or to kind of being a part of, of those things. There is a very, very aspirational quality to fine dining. And it's not something that everybody can afford 
every day. There is a sense of, is this a craft that I wanna practice every day? Is this a craft that I believe in like holistically? Yeah, there has to be a way to make it easier, more balanced so that you don't need this huge brigade in order to put together these these uh, beautiful things that we can imagine. You know, it's interesting. A lot of our most successful chefs uh, started off as you did as a dish, as dishwashers, right? And they kind of fell in love with the kitchen, the, the unusual hours, um, the physicality, the the team aspect of it, and then they became really good technicians, developed their palates, got you know studied up on the food. But the kitchen came first, right? It seems like in your case, you had this interest in food that predated coming to a kitchen. And it it seems like, you know, for all the success you've enjoyed and all the passion you have for the work, that the 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 lifestyle part of it, you know, which for a lot of people is so appealing, is something that you've kind of had to come to terms with or kind of had to get acclimated to or find some kind of peace with. Yes, absolutely. I, I've really fought against it in lots of ways. Um, I think finding food as the form in some ways, finding that the food or the meal as a form, building blocks of color, texture, flavor, light, um, everything that comes together to make what that meal is. Um, as say my form, the rules of the environment that that you need to create in order to produce that that experience, um, come along with or th- those rules for what you as the maker um, have to do, what how you have to behave, what the financial commitments and time commitments and personal commitments are there's a lot of trade-offs that aren't really hospitable you know we call this the hospitality industry but we're not really hospitable to a lot of the people that work within it um so i i have often thought about you know and really wrestled with you know you know the uh this idea about like you know am i providing for somebody an experience that i cannot afford or i cannot attain or i don't really want i want to make sure that the audience um and you know a, a filmmaker will make how many different films or you know the there are very few people that make the same film over and over and over again in restaurants you know we try and make a consistent experience for many years that meal we talk about restaurants where you know our favorite meal our favorite uh food we're going to go back and order that same dish some of those places are you know changing all the time some of our favorite restaurants that that experience that you're going to go back to is is always different in both cases or in all cases it requires a tremendous amount of energy and effort and i feel like for um for me the way that I want to be doesn't involve a 90 hour work week. It doesn't involve challenging a huge crew to live outside of their means. It involves um, learning and exploring deeply what it means to be together. That meal, um, when you have that, like the things that were first really compelling about um, a meal as a family, you know, cooking is a simple part of that. 
setting the table is a part, cleaning up after is a part, being together is the thing. And you know, I, I remember this very clearly. As soon as I got into restaurants, I was a pain in the ass in the kitchen at home. I, f- I immediately wanted to take over. I wanted to show off. I want to do these things. And like how many Thanksgivings I was, I like alienated everybody else and kind of booted them out because I was going to try something crazy or something stupid. I'm just smiling like this because Rocco Despirito was on this show, uh, gosh, maybe just a year and a half. I think it might've been in 2020. It feels like 10 years ago now, but he was saying when he came back from the Culinary Institute of America, he ruined Thanksgiving yes. because he, instead of just making a traditional dinner, it was, you know... I don't remember, but you know what I mean. It was Whatever like, it is. Yeah, it was like uh, sweet potato risotto. And sure. da, like instead of just doing the sweet potato with the marshmallows, you know, it was like but and turkey roulade. And, sure. Yeah. And but, you know, you're do, you're doing it for yourself as a way to, to show off or to explore. And really, you know, that can be a lot of fun. It can be wonderful for the people that you're with, but you know, especially in my case, like if it's the way that I'm moving or the way that I'm planning or the way that I'm just kind of like taking stuff and saying, you're not doing it well. Like that's not family, that's not a meal, that's not hospitality. And yet we do this in kitchens all the time. Right. We do this to ourselves and we do this to other people. That energy that the chef has to carry when they're gonna berating a comi, like I don't wanna carry that. I don't wanna you know, force this thing this square peg round hole kind of situation into being it should all be in balance whether it's the dining room and the uh the resources that the kitchen has in order to produce incredible food they have to be in balance and if the community isn't looking for that or um you know the whatever it has to be supported and what i find for for myself to be most satisfying like each part along the path that if it's an ingredient or if it's a maker or if it's a diner, all of the elements being together is what makes that great meal. Um, you know, I think being a, a chef, sometimes people focus exclusively on the food that's on the plate or in some cases the, the progression of dishes across the course of a meal. Like this arc of the narrative of a meal is a wonderful thing to kind of explore. But the food is one part. The food is what you buy. That's the transaction. The meal is the memory. The meal is so much more than what you know you put on the plate. And you know we carry that long past when you know our last bites are done, physically. So when when I think of what got me to look at food in this way, or got me to kind of say yes to being in restaurants. Um, there are a lot of things that I tried out, whether it's you know working in software development companies or publishing or um, random other stuff that I found really you know interesting or tried to take a path to getting back to things that were as exciting and and as um, involving uh, as restaurants and food were. It's a sense of collective learning. You know, the sense of being able to explore something together, whether you are um, a teacher or a student, whether you are the maker or the audience, whatever part of that dialogue you're in, you're not telling, you're showing. So this creative um, environment 
when some chefs are doing things that is very much like here's a simple narrative or any maker is doing something that this is a very simple narrative that can be intensely satisfying. You want that consistent thing. Somebody's going to fuck with the Twinkies, right? You're, you're not going to be very satisfied. You want a Twinkie that tastes like a Twinkie. But if oh you're going to have a real dialogue, example. Right. you're going to have something that's really going to explore. You're going to explore this together. Yeah. You want to have something that's explosive or ex there's change or like, how, where did this cauliflower come from? It's amazing. These are the kinds of things that in the maker's seat or the maker's role, when I get an opportunity to introduce somebody to that new cauliflower, like, holy cow, this is an explosive experience of this this thing that I've only had in these other ways. Like where, how, what, what is going on? And it's not my manipulation. It's all of the above. And it's that person's willingness to participate. Some people are not there. And I don't want to jam this down anybody's throat, but like that's what is satisfying to me from, from my, my spot. That's what I choose. I choose that kind of incredible opportunity to you know turn the lights on on cauliflower for somebody, um, but it it's it requires all of this infrastructure to be able to to make that moment happen. See, what's it's interesting to me because the, the last bit of what you said threw me a little because before that, when you were talking about what it takes to like. Uh, you know, keep a team together, what it takes to, you know, are you, are you presenting an experience that the people pre preparing it can't afford to indulge in themselves? You know, all these things, right? Yeah. And I was reminded, and it's very much top of mind for me because I've been watching these um, amazing reviews for this new Charlie Trotter documentary uh, called Love Charlie um, that just showed at the Chicago Film Festival and won Best of the Fest and got some great reviews. And, you know, I, one of the reviews I just read, you know, quoted him saying, like, if, you know, if it, if it just wasn't for the, the, the staff and the customers, this would be a great job, right? Mm -hmm. And, you know, the question that was kind of bubbling up in my mind as you were talking was, you know, was like, do you think you would you would have or could have been happy as like a writer or an artist? Because it seems to me, and and I should preface this by saying, we just, my wife Caitlin and I were just here last week. I'm sure I'll have described this in the introduction. I mean, you're a fabulous host. You're very concerned with the comfort and satisfaction of your guests. Um, you're 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 very solicitous of you know what people want and when they want it and how much of it and all of that. And I don't want to give an impression that's anything other than that. But listening to you talk a minute ago, I was like, this seems like a guy who, like, would be very happy, like, in a studio, you know? Uh, is that an accurate description of, like, your spirit, not to be too corny about it? No, sure. There are parts of me that would be thrilled to be in a studio, but where where I feel happiest is in the flow right when we can do all of these different things together when we have an opportunity to invite somebody into the studio and share with them that process you know i don't i don't work great you know in an isolated fashion but to be able to open the studio and invite somebody to participate or invite a bunch of people over for a dinner like amazing i don't work so well on the street like just doing things for you know for the wholesale market. So somewhere in the middle of that is this 
kind of happy medium when I, I think I could, could answer it maybe uh, this way. I love every part of the process. So it's introducing a cook to an ingredient, challenging somebody to refine it, seeing what somebody comes up with, being inspired by that result, seeing who's growing it, seeing where it comes from, um, seeing how that person responds to it, whether that person, you know, their eyes light up and they sit back and they take a moment, um, they're still going to go back to their conversation, but that we have touched them with the food, that we have touched them with that experience. I mean, maybe it's two days later that they realize something. Right. But if you can do all that in the construct of kind of a, a good working environment with appreciative um, with appreciative guests in a way that doesn't um, tack, overly tax you, yes. then you're a happy camper. Right. But that's yeah. I think any chef would say that. Any restaurateur would say that, right? Like nobody's looking to get beat up. Yeah, I mean, I, nobody's I, looking. I don't just entirely agree for, with that, actually. Why? I think there's a, a population out there that I don't know. I think there's a this is a smaller and smaller group, right? But you know, like there's so much, um, and I don't mean to, I don't mean to detour this into my own philosophy, but there's. Um, you know, there's a lot of antipathy right now toward fine dining, mm-hmm. right? Toward these these kitchens, toward, you know, a lot of people think they're universally abusive. I don't think they are. I think some of them are, sure, still, at least verbally, right? But I do think there is a population of cook for whom that is a challenge, mm-hmm. for whom they're looking for the, the high school football coach they never had, mm-hmm. or they're looking for the hard-ass father they never had. Yeah. Um, these are mostly men, but not exclusively. Um and uh, and they see it as something that, you know, if they can get through it, they will be better at their craft than they would have been if they did not test themselves in that way. Sure. And they look at it like a sort of the way you, you look at like boot camp as portrayed in, in an officer and a gentleman, right? You have earned this. Yes. Now, I'm not saying that that's healthy. I'm not saying that I particularly relate to it, uh, but I also don't intrinsically have a problem if that is a, if that is a dynamic that certain people want and think they'll thrive in and seek it out okay you know like i don't condemn i think there's a condemnation of that kind of uh, environment right now and i understand the philosophy that condemns it but I, and I'm, this is only me kind of maybe no, getting a, I mean, but to I your totally point you. I, I there I, I know, you and I both know some of these people and some of them now are very successful chefs in their own right and and but but there there is this smaller and smaller group of people who they want to go into the three-star Michelin place and they will talk lovingly one day about how they came in and got chewed out for the first week and went home and cried and then there was the day where they realized they'd become competent yeah and 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 they look at that as a rite of passage. Sure. You There's know? a big difference between being in an environment that is safe and not safe. And there are environments that I think people have created in, in restaurants historically that have been not safe. And I think it's, I, I really think that there is, there are hard kitchens and there are fast kitchens and there are kitchens where um, it really depends on that, you know, the very gruff, firm communication of ideas that, you know, somebody is going to let you know in a very 
maybe not condescending, but explicit way, this is or is not acceptable. Brutal. In a brutal way. Sure. Yeah. And there there is a difference between- And maybe a personal way. Sure. There's You're a, an idiot. Right. Yeah. And there's a difference between that brutality and being specific. And there's a difference between being firm and being unfair. And Right. And being demanding and being personal. Right. And I think that it's it's often the um, the you know environment that creates the insecurity that there is this set, sense of danger, and it is really soul crushing for a lot of people. And I think a lot of restaurants really depend on this to produce the quality of product that they do. That people feel compelled to work in this way. I have needed to work in that way. I have been in kitchens where it has been explicit. I've never felt unsafe. I've never felt um, disrespected. I have been told that things were not up to a standard and I have felt bad about not being able to reach a standard. But I think that there are kitchens and I have very much avoided them where it has been sport to make people feel not okay about what they're doing to challenge people to see are you good enough well i don't i don't need to know that for myself and some people i don't need to torture anybody we're in a very very different time now though and some of those kitchens certainly will still exist because the pace and the, the ability for people to be very, very explicit about what the requirements are to do the job. I think, you know, I, I applaud people for communicating that kind of thing effectively. That, you know, you're going to say, this is exactly what I need to be done. And this is how I want you to do it. And, you know, A or B, this is not, this is a binary situation. You've either done it or you haven't. You can do it over. I don't need to cuss you out if you have not performed it well, but you need to know that this is not acceptable and something that we can serve. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it's funny. You know, years ago, somebody um, described to me, I don't think he'd mind me saying this on the air, um, but they described to me they were somewhere downtown in Manhattan and it was like a, a I don't know, if Saturday or Sunday afternoon, I think. And at the next table was a kind of an, an, an older chef uh, uh, speaking to somebody who worked for them and having this incredibly civil conversation that it wasn't working out mm-hmm. and it wasn't really the right place for them. And this, per- you know, they were real, this person, I guess, I guess we would call this eavesdropped on the whole thing. And they described it to me and I said, I know who that was. I didn't know who the cook was mm-hmm. or the sous chef. I don't know who was getting let go. I said, but that's, I'm sure that's Jonathan Waxman. And, um, I saw Jonathan a week later and I said, did you take someone out for a coffee and very politely let them go uh, about a week ago? And he was like, how'd you know that? And I said, a friend of mine was like at a table with an earshot of you and they were very impressed. Yeah. You know? Yes. But that, that, that is a way to do it. Yeah. And I think some, some people don't like, you know, you're talking, we talked about, you know, the kind of misfit mentality or people that are, you know, condemned to kitchen life because they weren't able to succeed anywhere else you know this is not a glamorous job by any means for somebody who 
uh, is getting into it, we we have to do a lot of the basic stuff. There's all of the grunt work, the Charlie work, the dirty work, the whatever you want to call it. Like we have to get stuff done. We have to produce results, however fair or unfair those things are. And now more than ever. Now more than ever. With the staffing thing and... Absolutely. My friend Eric Williams in Chicago had a picture of himself snaking a drain the other day. You know, I couldn't I wait been, for the plumber to get there. I have been knee deep in the grossest of gross, the you know muckiest, muckiest muck, and that's part of the job. That's what we sign up for. And this is you know the same as any homeowner will tell you. You gotta you gotta do the dirty work. You're gonna be a dad. You know you gotta change some diapers and. I, Changing the diaper for a restaurant means like, you know, cleaning out the the uh, grease pit and whatever that whatever that entails. And you still have to be graceful about it at this point. And to be, you know, from from my perspective, uh, at this point, like having worked in environments where people are explicit or firm and not. Um, inappropriate I still am not really great at being clear about what I want and you know I think what I wanted with the Finch was for um, I wanted very much to create an environment where everybody could come and bring their sense of creativity and their sense of exploration to um, you know build a, a real dialogue to invite our guests to be part of the dialogue as whether it's the audience or as a regular guest to um, to have some sort of ownership of being in that environment. And I think when I said, I'd like you to do this in a certain way, sometimes that um, the way that I said it would be misunderstood and maybe it's not being that firm or a screamer or um you know if i came off as passive aggressive or i came off as wishy-washy that let some people who are looking for that type of um critical feedback or that type of instruction down i was very much taken advantage of by people who took that for um, an opportunity to go beyond what was appropriate. Um, I think about uh, ways that I, I am most excited to have dialogue with um, the people that I work with. And it's not you know, giving away 100% of control. That's not dialogue. That's letting somebody else have the monologue. I don't want somebody to just take a dish I want to have somebody build a dish and then let's taste it together. Let's talk about it. Let's figure out what it needs, to, how it needs to change. And then we set it. So before service is dialogue, during service is monologue. And I think in a lot of restaurants, you don't have that. You really have a different type of monologue. Mm. And prep where you have that kind of called the old school screamer kitchen, That that is still very much of you have to be of one mind it is the chef's will um i really wanted people to be empowered to make their own decisions i want to be impressed that that person understands so well what it is that we're doing here what it is that we together want now if we all say that we're going to work in blue and you paint it orange 
you're not painting it the right color. Can't really serve the orange thing. We have to repaint it. And sometimes that that's what happens, but it doesn't do me any good to have a freak out on the person with the orange paint. And I think that that's where, you know, we have this, um, challenge in our industry, this, this, uh, idea that the only way to get that person to stop painting in orange is to scream at them. That's not, that's not the way it's to be clear about the mission. It's to be clear about the message it's to be clear about this, these instructions. It's to be there and be supportive. It's to be a good teacher. It's to be a great leader. It's to be next. It's all of these other things. And to be clear about the importance of certain things, right? Absolutely. That, right. Yeah. But it's the the negative reinforcement isn't going to make that person do what they, you know, in, in I think some environments, yeah, for some people, absolutely. You cuss them out once, they're going to learn. But that's, not, that. I don't want to carry that. Mm-hmm. I don't want to carry that energy. And as much as I definitely learned from firm instruction, I, I would love to have a, a productive conversation where we all agree on something together. Now, you mentioned it right now with staffing. Like, you know, I hate to say that we're looking for warm bodies, but like we don't have enough people to do what we want to do, never mind what we can imagine. So having appropriate staff, having this many cooks, having people to fill our shifts uh, gets us to, you know, point A gets, you know, our, we're, we're able to deliver what we say we're going to deliver, what, what's on the menu, but what we can imagine, how we can grow, what we see, what, what we can go and hunt down and forage and, you know, build in our minds is tremendous. And the the ways that we've built this environment at Troutback are really there there is a foundation for so much. And we need the people to fill out the the team to be able to deliver that. Um it it is not we're not the only ones, but you know, we we have had people come and go um, more so now than ever before. And we really haven't seen people come back. It's, it's kind of a, it's a really, uh, hard thing to see the other side of. What do you mean the other side of? Well, you know, and I, oh, you I mean, it's hard to see past the moment, right? Yeah. What is going to happen to the to the industry? What does this mean for food? What does this mean for how many pe- people we can fit in a dining room? What is a restaurant going to look like in two years, five years, ten years? Is this the kind of the the bursting of the bubble? You know, there was this incredible period of growth in restaurants over the past ten years. Like just thinking about New York City, like there is just this golden age that's happened there. Um, and wondering like, well, there's still people opening tons and tons of restaurants, but there's no cooks. Mm-hmm. There's still a lot of money flowing into hospitality. There's all of these kinds of new concepts and ways that people are thinking about, like, what does it mean to, to make and serve food? But we can't really do it right. 
we can't really do it in a call it sustainable way where we're looking at the health of the business of the employees and of the guests and of the environment on an even level we're trying to say look you know if i raise my prices will people come back well this isn't if you're if you're talking about that you're not saying what the real cost is if you pass the real cost of a dish or a meal onto the guest that's honesty that's openness that means everybody within the restaurant or the restaurant community should be paid a fair paid a fair wage that's the truth it's false advertising if you are undercharging your guests if you're not going to pass that real cost on the people then it's it's not the real cost of the meal yeah but so, that's been true for a long time absolutely yeah and the restaurant industry has been in, in large part broken because of it what if do we, you attribute that to i mean you know i've had this talk in various forms over the last you know year and a half you know it feels to me you know that there is this resistance um, or perceived resistance among customers to prices going up in the industry um that relative to inflation restaurant prices have barely moved you know over the last 10, 15 years. And again, I'm not saying this in a critical way because I understand the psychology, but I feel like collectively the industry has kind of kicked this can down the road to a breaking point, mm -hmm. right? And now in some cases is trying now to finally clean that up to, to you know, there was this notion of the quote unquote reset, you mm -hmm. know, coming out of the, the pandemic. You know, and some places have raised their prices. If I'm honest and I, you know, I, I, uh, I, I don't have the resources of, you know, the people who dine at like fine dining restaurants every night, but I dine out a fair amount. I have a lot of friends in the industry. I want to support people. If I'm honest, I've had some sticker shock Yeah. in the last six months. I have. I have. It hasn't kept me from going out, but I'm like, oh my God, like, you know, like it's it's been stunning to me absolutely the adjustment uh but it, that's largely because it hasn't happened more incrementally right the way it does with other goods and services right. but if you look at the profit margin on a bottle of water and you compare that to a bowl of pasta like the people that make the water don't have a problem putting their kids in braces you know people that are selling the pasta maybe might not make payroll you know, so if you charge an extra $3, $4, $10 on top of that pasta, you still might not make payroll. But that's not just scale. That's that's the way that restaurants function. That's the way that they work. That's the health department coming in with a new regulation and saying that you got to put this new thing that's going to cost you $12,000. Mm -hmm. um, there are all of these parts of running a restaurant, of managing people, of trying to squeeze blood from all the stones that you've got um, that are very, very hard. And if you try and create um, an environment where you know you have a cushion, where you have profit, where you have the ability to reinvest um you have to charge a reasonable amount of money unless there are all kinds of deals there are all kinds of ways that you know maybe this magical structure works so that people don't have to charge that much money or their costs are, are low but by and large yeah for the independent operator that has one two restaurants right that's what you're that which is most people yeah yeah it's it's very very hard to put two things together yeah. It's very, very hard to see um, 
a way to um, find success, quote unquote, where you're you're taking care of your physical space, you're taking care of your employees, and you're taking care of your guests. You know, as as the owner or as the chef, I can't see this. And I've I've seen so many ways to make these things happen in the past. Like, oh wow, I could just do this. I have these you know great visions for for different kinds of environments. Um, and it's not like the the uh, the rules have totally changed, but I don't see the chance of success as um, as realistic or as mm-hmm. possible. Mm-hmm. And I definitely don't see the willingness um, of the guests to support that I was hopeful to see in coming out of the reset. I was hopeful that people would be much more active in their own communities. Well, we can't yet go out in the ways that mm-hmm. we want to. Um, I was hopeful that things would be, uh, you know, much more shorter turnaround. Like we, we were hopeful for so many things. There, we don't have any answers yet. We still don't know about much of anything, but I do think that we, in seeing what folks are going to charge, just the blips of the conversation about sticker shock or the conversation about what is the real cost. I don't think that there's a willingness yet for anybody to pay a dishwasher $25 an hour or make it so that the the prep cook is only working 35 hours a week and can afford childcare. These are things that if if we were really going to reset the industry and were to th- put everything up on a board, we have to make sure that the people that are doing these jobs, it's not, we don't need to make sure that the, you know, the person doing job A is going to have a you know, beach house after 10 years of working here. But we have to make sure that for this industry to um, continue to evolve, that we're answering the question of how does this person make a living? How does this person survive? Can somebody who's going to go to culinary school expect to be able to come out and pay off their loans? We've never answered that question. We've never been able to do that. I mean, I don't know, going back, you know, when I was starting to cook, like very few people that I knew went to culinary school. Mm -hmm. I didn't, I mean, I knew one guy by the time I was out of college, but how are you going to do that on even now $18 an hour? Mm -hmm. I just, I don't get it. So looking at the, the the way that uh, Gabrielle Hamilton's uh, article when we first all shut down Mm -hmm. um, about, you know, the, the real cost of a beer, about being the one who's scrubbing out behind the stove that's not the behavior that the CEO of a, of a, of a Fortune 500 company is going to go through. That's not the level of dedication that I think anybody would really expect of somebody in a different kind of an industry. This is a, you know, kind of an, an anomaly. This industry is bizarre and wonderful and magical. But in order for us to see what's on the other side, 
I think that there's a lot of questions that we all still need to, to find some reasonable answers to on how to do it right. I don't even know what to say, right? Because this is like every comp. I had to, I was uh, trying to help some people this week connect with some chefs around something. And so mm -hmm. I was talking to some people I haven't talked to in a while. And like every chef I call, it's the, they're all, you know, there's the staffing. They all sound overworked, you know. And some of these are people who like they're big name people, you yeah. know. Like you said, it can it's not glamorous most of the time. Um, but, you know, I hear you talk the way you just did you know and and I'm, it's not unique to you but i'm like how does this get better i mean there was a real optimism in the middle of this uh trauma that we've all lived through like about a year ago there was an optimism yes. of what the what was going to happen when you know things quote unquote came back mm -hmm. and you know in some places they are i mean new york city right now is in many ways back i mm -hmm. mean partially back you know the the covid positivity rate in Manhattan has been under 1% now for over a week. It's you got to start you got to plan again if you want to go to a, a, a semi-popular restaurant on a Friday or Saturday night. You got to plan now a couple mm -hmm. weeks ahead or you're not going to get a reservation. Like you know, th these are things that were not the case even like 3 months ago. Sure. But the change didn't really come, right? By and large. No. And and so then I'm like, well how does any of this get better? And then you put the staffing problem on top of that. And it's just like, I mean, at heart, in some ways, philosophically, I'm, I'm a libertarian, you know, like, like, um, it'll be what the market wants it to be, mm -hmm. and what the employees or non employees as increasingly want it to be, it'll, it'll, it'll shape shift and find its level, you know, that works for the various constituencies you're talking about. Yeah. I don't know. I mean, I do think something's gonna something's got to give, right? Like we're at that point. You can feel mm -hmm. it straining, right? Yes. But nobody knows what's that's what that's going to be. Like I don't. I've never thought that. You know, I I had Joshua David Stein on the show a little while ago. Joshua and I tried to sell a book last year called Reset, actually. Mm -hmm. And you know, we literally had people saying to our agent publishers, like, "Well, it's intriguing, but we don't know if there's going to be a restaurant industry," and. But I, I never thought that was a legitimate response. I, right. Of course, we're going to have restaurants. Of course, but what do they feel The like? size and shape and the format and all of yes. that might change. Um, it's tough to imagine it because, you know, for, for generations now, restaurants more or less have been the same thing. I mean, some of them may have more pomp, pomp and circumstance and, you know, the show, you know, of fine right. dining and um, all that stuff, you know, to varying degrees has changed over the years. But by and large, for about a century, you know, like restaurants, you come in, you get a menu, you order, <laughs> they bring it to you. Right. You know, that's, that's, it's a fixed location, you know, but I think all of that now is, um, fungible well and this is where you know one of the things that i'm most excited to be able to do here at troutback is so much more possible we're not just a restaurant we're not just a fixed location we're on over 300 acres here and we have this incredible house it's not just a dining room we have this capacity to tell all of these incredible different kinds of stories here um, which leave us, you know, an incredible amount of work every time we want to tell a different story. We're kind of reinventing or rewriting what that thing is. 
But if we want to set a table in the middle of a stream for a kind of a magical dinner, fine, we can do that. Like, absolutely. We can do anything that we can imagine here. The resources uh, that we have of physical bodies or of money or of tools, like we can imagine all of these things. We, we have these kind of hard constraints, but we'll figure it out. We have also, this is a hotel. Like we have as a, as a business, we're not just looking for diners for dollars. There are other ways that we as a business make money. Um, so we're in so many restaurants, like you, you just are there selling food and drink. We have so much more with, you know, an active membership or um, the, the, the rooms revenue or the, the ways that we do banquets for lots of people here. We don't do rubber chicken for, you know, uh, uh, weddings, but we, we make really good food for a lot of people at a time. Um, that makes so much of what we can imagine possible. And it's not being of two minds, it's doing the work of running a food and beverage program on a property like this. Like that is a singularity. Within that are banquets, you know, running a snack bar at a pool or making picnics for people or what is the breakfast pastry gonna be? How are we gonna make a really incredible late night dinner for somebody like after their wedding like what's the what's the best thing that we can do given somebody's gonna be here for two weeks we got to do all kinds of different stuff you have people come and stay here for two weeks some people yeah wow with people you know usually about three days Mm -hmm. um we have people that stay for for a night we have people that uh visit for somewhat longer we have members that are here uh, a couple times a week um there there are all kinds of different ways that people use the property so we do imagine a different ways that um we can deliver an incredible experience for folks while they're here and some of that yeah is putting together a bunch of courses to make an incredible meal at dinner time you know, if that's, you know, having a cheeseburger and sitting in bed and watching a movie, awesome. So all of these different things are really possible here. But where at the Finch, what we were trying to do in that same kind of a way was very much constrained. We were trying to have this expansive imagination of different ways that people could dine there whether you're coming in for a snack or you wanted to do a, you know, a longer format meal. Um, but we were really constrained to time of day, you know, the environment that we were in. Um, it was a blended, uh, you know, destination restaurant and a neighborhood restaurant. And so there are all of these things that made it hard for us to kind of tell our story. I think we did a pretty damn good job um, but where we are here um, at Troutbeck, there is a lot that people are willing to say yes to. 
there's a lot of stuff that we can imagine um, and people are excited about. So that, that, that feels very, very satisfying. But coming back to it, like the, the way that this restaurant, if you know, you're isolating the restaurant at Troutbeck um, is able to thrive or the new, call it new models. Like we're not just trying to sell dinner. The Finch really didn't want to just do dinner. You know, we wanted to be growing beyond what we were. Um, but Troutbeck is three meals a day, seven days a week. We're year round um, in an environment where some people will will close down for slower seasons. Um, we have plans to make an incredible uh, step forward in our property and our community of uh, delivering hospitality. Um, that's not um, just a restaurant. So we, we have this, I don't want to say it's a, uh, yeah, I mean, it's, we have this incredible engine to, uh, to deliver hospitality here. Does it feel, I mean, coming from Connecticut as you do, does this feel, I mean, do you feel like on an animal level, somewhat at home up around here? Absolutely. When Anthony Champalimode and I were first talking about, uh, the project and how I could get involved with, this is before Troutbeck opened, uh, they had just kind of completed the purchase and started some of the res- re- renovations. Um, this is really where I grew up. And he had invited me to come and see what the space was like. I had never known that Troutbeck was here. I grew up really like 45 minutes away. Um, so the landscape feels very much like home some of the farmers that we use now are farmers that i have known for many many years um the 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 feeling of what makes uh sense throughout the year feels very natural to me um and it it also is like what what feels in some ways natural in new york city because this is very much the same kind of original environment but it's not it's very not at all urban here obviously but it's similar weather and um but this is this is like where this is very much um it's rural like where i'm from um you know the leaves are changing in the same pace um the same kind of conversations happen around you at the grocery store and um it it feels very very much like coming home and so for us as a property to be focused on community, um, I feel like I can do that in a different way because I feel like this is my community. I'm not a transplant from even New York City coming to Amenia um, to then transport you back to New York City. Um, if you are coming from Sharon, Connecticut, which is six miles away i want you to feel just as welcome as somebody coming from around the world and i want this to be and we all here want this to be a kind of celebration of being at troutbeck we look to the house for inspiration we look to the land we look to the streams that are kind of beautifully overflowing their banks right now um, with this kind of intense rain 
We look to what it means to be here. We're sitting in this library with this collection of books that are from, you know, the the Troutbeck, you know, library and from homes that have been a bit around here, or some are from our members, or some are from authors that we have deep relationships with. This is you are you are only here when you are Troutbeck. And so for me to be able to make food here is like I am drawing on my past um i am drawing on the influences that are obviously where, where i've been and who mm-hmm. i've been around but i was at my mom's house for dinner last night mm-hmm. you know uh that there are things that we can only do um here because of these uh you know the farms that are here the communities that we're within um, and I, it feels very, very personal to me. You know, my intention was to do, you know, a straight biographical interview. We kind of got off on some big tangents. The funny thing is I should tell listeners like, you know, last week we were going to do an interview when I was here and we ended up just gabbing. Uh, I had to change batteries during this interview. We got off on another thing. Um, I feel like I should just periodically come up here and we should just, um, you know, just see where the conversation goes I'm in. and talk about personal stuff, industry stuff. Um, uh, Cause I feel like with you and me, uh, some of the conversations we've had off mic would have been great shows. Absolutely. Yeah. I think we're, we're, we're solving problems here, Andrew. <laughs> or at least identifying them. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, all right. Well, it's great to see you twice in one week. Yes. And uh, congratulations on what you have going here. Thank you, Andrew. And that is our show for today. My thanks again to Gabe McMacken and to the folks at Troutbeck for hosting us a few weeks ago. I look forward to seeing all of you again soon. Andrew Talks to Chefs is produced by Table 12 Productions. The show is written, booked, edited, mixed, and hosted by me, Andrew Friedman. If you would like to support us, we ask that you do that by telling a friend, posting about the show on social media, or by rating or reviewing us at Apple Podcasts. Our thanks, as always, to After School Special for our music. Please check out their album, Double Barrel, Single Entendre, on iTunes. Please follow us on Instagram. The handle for the show is at Chef Podcast. Thank you for listening, and we will see you back here soon with another episode of Andrew Talks to Chefs.